Well, you've already got your Bible open, and you're probably open to Genesis 14. And I don't know if I'm going to confuse you or not, but I'm going to have you turn now to the book of Hebrews. And this is all going to make sense, I promise. At least I'm going to give it my best shot here in the next few minutes, okay? So go to the book of Hebrews. We are in a series that's entitled The King of Righteousness, The King of Peace. And we're walking through the letter that an unknown, mysterious author wrote to a group of Hebrew or Jewish people. And that's going to be really important for all of us to understand this morning because we're going to get to chapter 7. And when we get to chapter 7, we're going to be introduced to this character named Melchizedek. And uh, you just read this story out of the book of Genesis, which is way back at the beginning of the Bible, if you're new to the whole Bible thing, where Melchizedek makes this cameo in the story of the scripture. And his, his cameo is very short-lived. In fact, you all just experienced it as John was reading from Genesis 14. That's it. And then he's going to be referenced another time in the Psalms. And that uh, Psalm is something that the author of Hebrews is going to quote a few different times as he tries to help this Jewish audience connect Jesus to Melchizedek. Now, if that's confusing for you, I'm sure it probably felt a little that way for them as well. In fact, my guess is that this uh, passage in the letter to the Hebrews my guess is this was a pretty disruptive experience for them. And again, we'll get into all of that here in just a second. But what I want to do as we get started is, is uh, just dive in, which clearly I'm doing. I'm going to show you kind of the big ideas Pastor Jeff typically does. I'm going to show you the big idea. We're going to start there as we jump in. So the big idea today is that Jesus... The king of righteousness, the king of peace, spoiler alert there. I don't know if you guys saw that coming, but when we titled the series, the king of righteousness, the king of peace, all along the idea was we were going to make sure you knew that was Jesus, okay? So Jesus, the king of righteousness and the king of peace is a high priest forever, forever. Now remember forever, that's going to be important this morning, okay? And this is good news, and I could just stop there. But it's good news, especially for those of us who are tired of broken leaders, broken promises, and broken laws. And, and maybe this big idea is fitting for us, timely for us today, right? We just spent some time to slow down and pray for a tragedy that took place within a few hours of here. Many families in our own state, in our own county, in our own cities here um, in Orange County impacted by this tragedy. And, and all of the arguments start, right? And everybody kind of takes their side and everybody starts throwing stones at one another and saying we need more of this or less of that. And in the midst of all that, you have people grieving the tragic and horrific loss of life in their families. And we're reminded in weeks like this that there has to be something better that all of us are longing for. There has to be something that provides more security, more stability, more hope for us than the leaders we could attach ourselves to, the promises that we could place our hopes upon, or the laws that we could look to to provide some sense of security in our lives. So Jesus is the king of righteousness, the king of peace, but he is a high priest forever, and this is good news for us. This is good news for us 
this very day. So let's jump in, okay? If you're there in Hebrews, what I want to show you is just introduce this character of Melchizedek to you. And I'm going to do that by having you go back just a couple chapters to chapter 4, okay? We're just going to look real quickly at how this has all been set up as the author of Hebrews has been writing this letter. He's been setting us up for chapter 7, okay? It's, it's already, he's kind of laid the groundwork, and I want to make sure you see the groundwork, or we're going to miss what he's trying to say in chapter 7 with me? So if you go back to chapter 4 and verse 14, in fact, your Bible may have this little heading that says, Jesus, the great high priest. That's kind of the, the title of, of this next little section in his, uh, you know, he didn't write it that way, but, you know, somebody came along later and helped us out, okay? And so they, they entitled this little section, Jesus, the great high priest. So the author is trying to tell us that Jesus is not only a high priest, but he's a really good one, okay? Maybe the best one. And as he's telling us about Jesus being the great high priest, he, he you know, Pastor Jeff already kind of covered all this, but he, he just gives us this amazing language of how he can sympathize with us. And because of Jesus, we can now walk into the very presence of God and receive grace and mercy as he closes out chapter four. I mean, these are amazing things that he's saying. And as he goes into chapter 5, still along this topic of Jesus being a great high priest, he's going to kind of give us some understanding of what the Old Testament priests were supposed to be doing. That they would offer sacrifices and gifts, that they would be gentle and kind to the ignorant because they themselves had their own weaknesses. But in the midst of all of that, he reminds us that Jesus is still the great high priest, really superseding anything that these Jewish people would have known within the old covenant. And if you get into verse 5 of chapter 5, he's going to say that Jesus didn't exalt himself, but he was appointed. And then look at this. He's appointed by God who says, you're my son, today I've begotten you. Verse 6, he also says in another place, this is Psalm 10, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, that's the first time the author of Hebrews has even used this name. But he's using it in connection with Jesus as the great high priest. That's what's important for you and I. Now, as you keep reading down in this section, he's going to remind us again, Jesus knows our weaknesses. He, he prayed, he says in verse 7, he cried out. He saved us from death. Although he's a son, verse 8, he learned obedience through what he suffered. He being made perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And then look at this, being designated, verse 10, by God, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. There's the second time that he's been setting this up. So this Melchizedek character must be important. There, there must be some reason that the author of Hebrews wants to take us back to this, this obscure Old Testament figure and tie Jesus' priesthood to this figure. And he's laying this foundation for us. Now, the next time that he's going to talk about Melchizedek, he's going to kind of give this little aside at the end of chapter 5, into verse 6. And then he's going to start a new section in verse, chapter 6, verse 13, about how we can trust the promises of God. And I'm not going to read through that one like I just did chapter 4 and 5. I just want you to look at chapter 6, verse 19. So now he's laid this argument that we can trust the promises of God, they're certain. God doesn't say something and then 
it's a suggestion or we wonder whether or not this is going to happen. When God promises something, it's sure for us. Look at the language he uses, chapter 6, verse 19. We have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. I mean, how amazing is that language? This is bedrock for us. This is immovable for us. This is something that you and I can place our lives, our hopes, the the very fiber of our being upon, and it's sure, it's steadfast for our souls. What is it? Well, it's a hope, he says, that enters into the inner place. We're talking about the very presence of God now behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, chapter 6, verse 20, And then here he goes, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. All right. He set it up. We're all now at the point, if we're following along in this letter, if we were Jewish uh, people with a Hebrew mindset, with our life, our faith, our values, everything that's kind of built upon this old covenant, at this point we would all concede, okay, fine, fine. Jesus is a high priest. But who is Melchizedek? Why do you keep talking about Melchizedek? Why are you tying the Jesus being a high priest to this character out of the Old Testament? Well, since he set all of that up, since he's prompted these questions, we get now to chapter 7, verse 1. He's going to answer these. So he's going to answer these by telling us a little bit about who this Melchizedek character is. Okay, so look at chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, King of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Now, that's what we just read moments ago in Genesis chapter 14. Okay, you don't have to know a ton of history here. We're not going to do a lot of historical context this morning. But what what we saw is that Abram, he was still Abram at the time. He wasn't Abraham just yet. It's a few chapters later in Genesis. But Abram takes some of his men... And he goes on a rescue mission. That's really what's happening. You see, his nephew Lot had been captured when some kings came against Sodom. That Yes, that Sodom. And he, he, uh, Lot and all of his possessions, his family, everything got taken away. And Abram, being the patriarch that he is, he was responsible at this point for his his, uh, nephew Lot. He gathers some of his men and he, he goes on a rescue mission and he takes on these kings and he, he, he wins. Okay, he wins. It's like four or five cities of, of kings that he takes on and Abram wins. So Abram's the victor. Abram has all the spoils. Abram has his nephew Lot. Probably, I would imagine, some type of reprimand that's going on at this point as they head back and he, he's going to restore the things that were stolen. And as he's heading back, he's returning this figure, this Melchizedek, pops up on the scene. And we know a few things about him. We know, verse 2, that by translation, his name means king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek means. It's translated king of righteousness. We also know that he's the king of Salem, which is the king of peace. So there's, there's these titles that are given to him. And maybe you caught it as we were reading in Genesis 14. There's another title given to this man. He's also the, the, the priest of God most high. So he's a king of righteousness. He's a king of, of peace. And he's a priest. He's a priest of God most high. So whoever this guy is, he, he sounds like a pretty big deal at this point. Now verse 3, 
the author is going to continue to tease out this identity. He says, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Now, what is he talking about here? What he's saying is when, when we typically encounter somebody in the Old Testament, okay, if, again, if you're new to the Bible thing, when we typically encounter somebody in the Old Testament, these aren't myths that we're reading. Okay, this isn't some story that somebody conjured up at some point. This, this isn't some type of, of, of fairy tale that the Jewish people wrapped their entire identity as a people, their practices spiritually around. Okay, their faith was founded upon historical figures that, that lived in a certain place at a certain time that had parents and then had children. And so when we get to the genealogies in the Bible, I realize oftentimes we just kind of punt on those, right? We're kind of reading along and then this guy starts begetting that guy and we're just like, okay, where's the end of this? Can we move on here? But there's a reason why the Bible does that. It's, it's reminding us that everything that's written here is rooted in historical facts and figures. That's what's happening. But this Melchizedek shows up and the author says, we don't, have, we don't have a genealogy. We don't know that the guy has parents. I mean, most people do, but we don't know who this, this guy's parents is, right? We don't know when he started. We don't know that his life ended. In fact, he resembles, it says in verse 3, the son of God as he continues a priest forever. Now, that's what he's trying to establish. And, and there's a few different ways. This is kind of an aside, and we're going to do it real quick. There's maybe three ways that we can view Melchizedek, okay? And this is kind of the things that the nerdy people about the Bible argue over, all right? So I'm just going to entertain those of you that are nerdy, and, um, and then the rest of us, at least it just gives us an idea of what they're arguing about. So the first way that they view this is they view Melchizedek as actually the pre-incarnate Jesus. So what I mean is, Jesus is up in heaven, the Son of God, right? The second person of the Trinity, God the Son. He's, he's, with, he's there. He's not incarnate, meaning he hasn't come in flesh yet as the baby Jesus, okay, for, for those, those of you who understand that. But it's a pre-incarnate cameo of Jesus. And there's actually a number of these throughout the Old Testament. Um, there are some theologians who argue that anytime you see angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, you're actually looking at the, the pre-incarnate God the Son. He's showing up because, again, he's eternal, right? He's always been around. It's not like Jesus started when Mary gave birth to him, right? He's fully God. He's fully man. Um, but these Old Testament cameos of Jesus are a pre-incarnate, ta-da, like here I am. I'm in the story, okay, because he's been a part of the story, right, from the beginning. The second way that people view him is as a type. Now, what that means, it's again, it's another theological term. When we study the Old Testament, one of the things we understand about the Bible is that it's, it's coherent from beginning to end. And there's a story that's being told or revealed to us progressively from beginning to end. And, and the story centers upon the person, the work of Jesus. And so throughout the Old Testament, there are things that that foreshadow or point to Jesus. The temple would be an example of that. The Passover would be an example of that, okay? And so some say, no, this isn't really Jesus pre-incarnate as Melchizedek, but Melchizedek is a historical figure that just is a type. We look at him as, as, a, as a type, an example, okay? Now, the third way people view Melchizedek is just as an illustration. So in other words, the author of Hebrews is taking this historical figure and, and he's just using 
um, his titles and his story and, and everything as something that kind of translates or illustrates what he, the point he's trying to make. Now, regardless of where you land, and it really honestly doesn't matter. I'm just going to say that, okay? Sorry to disappoint those of you who like to study these things. But it really doesn't matter. What is very clear is that the author of Hebrews is making a point. That's what's very clear. And here's the point that he's making as we go on into chapter 7, verse 4. He's making the point that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Okay? So you've got to follow me on this. This is important. It's going to set up what he's trying to tell us in this chapter. So he's telling us the point he's making is that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, so much greater that Abraham, a patriarch, actually takes the spoils of his battle and gives a tenth of it to this, this figure, this, this Melchizedek character. Okay, that's a big deal. Abraham doesn't owe anybody anything. He won the battle. These are his spoils. He doesn't have to bend the knee. He doesn't have to pay homage. He doesn't have to give tribute to anybody. Yet, as a patriarch, Abraham is going to take a tenth of all that he has, which, which would have been contextually basically a token of saying, look, I know all this is yours. Here's a tenth of it. So Abraham is saying to all of us, you are greater than me. He's bending the knee here. He's bowing the head, okay? He's prostrating himself. Melchizedek, you're greater than me. Okay, that's, that's, that's the point that the author of Hebrews is trying to make. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And if Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, then guess what? Melchizedek is greater than Levi. Now, you've got to follow me here. Remember, this is an, a, a guy writing to a Jewish audience, okay? But he's going to go on here and say, I, we know that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham because he gave him, he gave him the, Abraham gave him the spoils. He's going to say in, in verse 7, we know that Abraham's, or Melchizedek is greater than Abraham because it's always the superior who blesses the inferior, and we see Melchizedek blessing Abraham, okay? So again, that's established. Melchizedek greater than Abraham. And if Melchizedek's greater than Abraham, then Melchizedek's greater than Levi. He's going to talk about how Levi is in the loins of Abraham. Now, again, if that loses you, okay, here's some really quick Jewish history. Abraham's a patriarch. Isaac's the next one that receives the promises. After that's Jacob. Jacob's name is turned to Israel. Aha, uh -huh, nation of Israel. Out of, you know, Jacob, Israel, comes this nation through 12 sons. Guess what one of the names of those sons is? Levi, right? So you guys are with me? Well done. You guys are with me. So Levi is the great-grandson of Abraham. So if, if Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, guess what? Melchizedek is greater than his great-grandson, okay? So Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Melchizedek is greater than Levi. And if those two things are true, then we better start asking some really serious and tough questions. That's what the author is trying to get us to do. Look at verse 11. He's going to ask a very serious and a very tough question. Here's what he says. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, okay, those are all of the sons of Levi, Okay, Levi and his tribe were given the privilege, the honored place amongst the nation of Israel to fulfill the responsibilities of the priesthood for the, for the nation. Okay, 
So he says, ask this question, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, now we're talking old covenant, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Aaron is the patriarch of the Levitical tribe. Okay, so what is he asking? Here's what he's asking. If the old system, if the priesthood underneath the law that was given to the nation of Israel, if it worked, why did God send Jesus? I mean, we have the old covenant, we have the Ten Commandments, we have the Levitical priests, we have the ritual sacrifices, we have all of that. And if all of that would bring salvation to us, would draw us near to God, if all of that was effective and it worked and it completed us as a people, restored us to relationship with God, what do we need Jesus for? What was the point of another priest coming? Why are we even making this argument, he's asking, that Jesus is a high priest? Who cares if the old covenant worked? Some serious questions, aren't they? And now he's going to take the rest of the chapter to answer that question in two ways. And that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time on. He's going to say two things out of this. He's going to say first that Jesus' priesthood is superior to the priesthood of the Levites. Okay, he's going to establish that. He's going to demonstrate that. And then he's going to show us how Jesus' covenant is better than the old covenant. Now, again, I know that we can sit here in 2017, so far removed from the, the writing of this letter, so far removed from any Jewish context, and be really just unmoved by that. But, but again, if we're going to enter into this story and understand what's being communicated, this literally would have blown the minds of a Hebrew person. Okay? It, it, would, it would have, I mean, if there's ever been a time in your life when your family made a radical shift in values or faith or ritual, you would understand exactly what I'm saying. I remember for Meg and I, as we began to have kids, and when we got to the third kid, and there's something about the third kid, those of you that have three or more, you're with me. Those of you who aren't there yet, just hang on, okay? If you get there, there's something about going from one and two when you can manage this. It's man on man to three when everything moves to zone. And now you're just thinking, I'm hanging on for dear life. And when that point came in our marriage, that was when I got on the phone with my parents and Meg's parents and I said, listen, we're not coming for Christmas. It just ain't happening. I'm not loading these three kids up that are two and under. I'm not going to do it because I'm going to lose my mind. <laughs> and if I lose my mind, there's a chance that I lose my family and maybe even my salvation. So I'm not going to do it. Okay. And there was trepidation for me in making that phone call because I was shifting, changing rituals, traditions that my family and her family held dear. And we're just talking about visiting for Christmas, y'all. Right? <laughs> like, this is somebody questioning, disrupting, shifting the very bedrock of their faith. 
Their identity was built on this. Their spirituality was built on this. Their nationality was built on this. Everything for the Jewish mind was built on this. And the author of Hebrews is saying, guess what? I don't think it's worth anything. What? (laughs) What? So he better back this up with something solid, right? Jesus' priesthood is superior to that of the Levites. Jesus' covenant is better than the old covenant. He's going to back this up. Let's see how he does it, all right? So number one, Jesus' priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood. And we're going to do this by basically just running down through here, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make the comparison for you, okay, as best as I can. So I want you to first look at verse 16, or sorry, verse 15, where uh, he says, this becomes even more evident with an- when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who became a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. And so he first tells us that the qualification for a Levitical priest is that they are required to be descended from Levi. Okay, that's the legal requirement. If you want to be a priest in the Old Covenant, then you need to have Levi as your dad at some point down the line. Make sense? Okay, well, let's compare that to the priesthood of Jesus, who basically said, I'm not going to worry about this descendant thing. Now, again, there's, there's some more in there, but we're just going to jump to his point. Um, what qualification did Jesus have to be a priest? The power of an indestructible life. I don't know about you, but that seems like a trump card, right? (laughs) Like, wouldn't you agree that if we're all around the table and someone's like, well, you know, my great, 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 great grandfather is actually Aaron and he was the first of the Levitical priests. And then another guy's like, oh yeah, well, I can't die. Just try it. (laughs) Just try it because three days later, I'm going to come back, right? We're all going to be like, okay, yeah, yeah, I'll pick... I'll go with the latter guy, right? That's what we would do. All right, second thing. Levitical priest versus Jesus is, is what? What's the second thing on here? Help me out. Appointment. Appointment. This is verse 20. It says, and it was not without an oath for those who formerly became priests were made, made such without an oath. Again, they just had to be a son of Levi. But, verse 21, this one, speaking of Jesus, was made a priest with an oath By the one who said, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Now, who's the one saying that? Yeah. Okay, so there is no oath. There is no endorsement. Are you a son of Levi? Yeah, okay, you can be a priest. Here with Jesus, you have God himself showing up and saying, this is my son. He'll be a priest, and he's going to be a priest forever. Okay, again, that's a huge deal. Right? That's a huge deal. In our politically charged society, if you have an endorsement from God, again, I think that's a trump card. I think that that would probably go a little further than just saying, oh, yeah, well, my family has some money, and my dad and my dad's dad were in politics, and so therefore I get this position, right? I mean, this is a big deal. How else is Jesus' priesthood superior to the Levites? Look at this in, in, in term, okay? Verse 23. The former priests were many in number because, this is it's actually kind of comical. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Okay, so in other words, he's saying, look, there was a lot of these guys. And the reason there was a lot of these guys is because they kept dying. Okay, 
They kept dying. I mean, we don't have any other qualification than that they're just a son of Levi. We don't even know that they're good priests. We'll find out. It's basically how it worked, okay? Is he a son of Levi? Sure, all right, give him a little ephod, like dress him up, put the funny, funny hat on him, and just go send him in there. And if he's worth anything, he'll come back out. If he's not, God will kill him. <laughs> like, and then they just kept dying. And even the ones that did a good job as being a priest, eventually they're going to get old, they're going to die. Somebody else has to take their place. And yet with Jesus, his term is permanent. Why? Because he lives forever. Okay, you can't destroy him. Jesus' priesthood is superior to that of the little priest. Let's see another one. Sacrifices. We'll jump on down. Verse 27. He, speaking of Jesus, has no need like those high priests. Okay, now he's almost condescending, the author, like those guys. To offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. See, that's how it worked. How did these priests offer sacrifices? Well, they did it daily, multiple times a day. Why did they have to do that? Because they themselves were sinners. They had to sacrifice for their own sins. And then on top of that, then they had to sacrifice for the people. That was their job. So they're doing this constantly, incessantly, around the clock, around the calendar. It never ended. What about with Jesus? Verse 27 since he, he doesn't have to do this, since he did this, what? He offered a sacrifice once for all by offering up himself. Again, that sounds far more superior, does it not? These other guys, they have to keep doing it again and again and again and again. And then they die and then somebody else in their family line has to keep doing it again and again and again and again. And we just keep going and it keeps going. And then Jesus shows up and he says, how about I offer myself as the perfect, spotless, sinless lamb of God. And then how about having been sacrificed for the sins of all of the world, I'm placed in a tomb. And then how about three days later, I defeat sin and I defeat death and I defeat the enemy and I prove that by rising from the dead. How about that? And I just do that one time and we call it good. That's what Jesus is doing. His priesthood is far superior to that of the Levitical priests. Okay, here's the last thing, in character. Look at this, in character. Now, verse 28, for when the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, uh, for the law, I'm sorry, appoints men in their weakness as high priests, okay? So in their weakness, what, what is he saying? Well, he's already told us they're sinful. That's why they're sacrificing for themselves. And when they sin, they become defiled, which, again, if you know anything about the Old Testament, that was kind of a big deal. You couldn't just waltz into the presence of God, okay? And if you were defiled, if you didn't do it according to the prescription of God, then it didn't go well. It ended in death, okay? That's, that's what he's established about the character of the Levitical priests. But what is he established about the character of Jesus? Now, I included weak here because that's one thing that he continually does is remind us that while Jesus is God, he is God in the flesh. Therefore, he understands our weaknesses. He shared our weaknesses. But while their weakness led to sin and defilement and death, the weakness of Jesus was sinless, was undefiled, and ultimately, having been buried and resurrected, he's now exalted. I think, like, this is the mic drop point for the author of Hebrews. The priesthood of Jesus is superior to what you had. That's what he's trying to tell him. The priesthood of Jesus is so far superior to what you had. There is nothing that would compare if you're looking for something to mediate between you and God. There is nothing else that compares to Jesus Christ. 
his priesthood is so far superior to what you had. But he had a second point in there, didn't he? And his second point is that Jesus' covenant is better than the old covenant. And again, I mean, these are fighting words in the Hebrew context. These are fighting words. What do you mean? There's something better than what we have through Abraham, through Moses, through the temple, the visible manifest presence of God among us. What do you mean there's something better than that? Well, the author of Hebrews is going to help us out here, and he's going to make two statements. And I want you to see these two statements because these, these are extremely volatile. The first statement he's going to make, look at verse 18. He's going to say, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. Now look at this parenthetical statement, verse 19. For the law, what? The law made nothing perfect. Whoa. Like I said, th- th- those are fighting words. Like what? He implied it before, right? He said, look, if, if, if this whole Levitical priesthood thing worked, if it would have made anyone perfect, why would we need another priest? Like, remember him asking that question, right? That's what started this whole thing. Well, he's not implying it anymore. He's just coming right out and he's explicitly stating, the law didn't work. It had its job and it did its job. We we should esteem the law. He's in no way saying that the law was pointless. He's saying that now that Jesus has come, we see the weakness of it. We see the uselessness of it. It didn't make you and I perfect. It didn't make the Jewish people perfect. How is that? What is it about the law, any law, that's so weak? Let me see if I can illustrate it a couple ways. Um, I, I've already alluded to it. Meg and I, we've got kids. We've got five of them. And uh, one, one of the things we like to do is, is we, like to, we like to get them all. Let's grab some bikes. Let's grab some scooters. Let's get your helmets because we currently live in Irvine, and the police literally will stop you if your kid doesn't have a helmet on. Um, that's how Irvine wor- works. And so, so we get them all geared up. We got water and snacks. And let, let's, let's take a walk, guys. Let's go, let's go for a walk. And so we get out, we're on the street, we're on the path, we're doing that thing. And there's times where the kids, since Meg and I are on foot and the kids are on wheels, that they're, they're much quicker than we are. And, and maybe they get around a corner, uh, maybe they get around a bend over a hill, and we can't see them anymore. And, and because Meg and I have taken the time to train our kids to stop at a curb, there really isn't much concern for her and I. Now, I'm not saying we just checked out, okay? Like, I don't want my kids to get hit by a car, but we've taken the time as parents to teach them a law, okay? And the law is, when you see a street, you're going to stop. You're not going to cross this line. Because if you cross this line, my concern is your life. Because you and a car, you're going to lose, Every time, okay? I don't care how big your helmet is. You're going to lose. So we draw a line, we establish a law, and then we've taken the time to train them in that law. Okay? You guys follow me on that? And for the most part, they actually do a really great job of that. Again, we we can come over the hill, around the bend. They're all just hanging out there like a little flock on the corner. 
and then we go across the street together. Now, I've got four boys. I'll use them. As my boys grow, I talk to them about being a young man. I want them to be responsible. I want them to use the strength that God's given them to, to serve, to care, to help those around them rather than using their strength to hurt and be a punk. Okay, so we talk about, I want them to grow. I want them to be responsible young men. Now, as my kids grow, if we're still in a position where I can get them geared up on the bike and I can send them off to their, let's say, sophomore year of high school, and as I'm leaving to go to work or the office or whatever I'm doing, and I happen to see that though I've left my son an hour ago, he took off to go to school, but as I come around the corner, he's still just sitting there at the curb. Son, what are you doing? Well, remember, you, you drew the line, Dad. This was the law. I can't go into the street. Well, son, it's a good thing I showed up then now because you're going to have to get across the street to go to school, and now you're an hour late. You left the house an hour ago. Right, like some of you are chuckling at me about that, right? Because that's the thing, that's the weakness of the law. The law assumes that at some point we're going to move on to maturity. That we don't have to just draw the lines forever. I don't want my 16 and 17 year old son waiting on me to cross the street. I don't. I don't want my college age daughter calling me on the phone. Hey dad, I'm walking to school. I just came. I'm looking both ways. Everything's clear. Are you cool if I cross the street? I don't want to have that conversation ever. But right now it makes a lot of sense. But that's the weakness of the law. The expectation is maturity, that we grow to a point of discernment and clarity. And if you want to put it in biblical terms, love. Here's, here's another way I could illustrate it. Um, we've done a lot of, of uh, premarital in our time, and maybe some of you are familiar with this tool. It's called the five love languages. Anybody ever heard of that? Okay. Ever heard of the five love languages? It's great. In fact, I, I remember even at some point in the past uh, doing a conference, marriage conference at a church I was at, and we had Gary Chapman, that's the author, into the conference, and I got to pick him up from the airport and take him back there for just got to talk with him. I think he's a great man. I think he's a godly man, and, and I think the tool is great, so I'm all for it, okay? But here's the thing about the five love languages, just illustrating the weakness of the law for you, okay? And if you're not familiar, I, I don't even know that I could, I, I should have I made this in my notes, right? So there's five love languages, that's the title, um, and we got I don't even know what do we got. Words, words of affirmation and service and touch and gifts and quality time. Well done. See, good thing you guys are here. So there's five love languages. And so the whole idea is that I am going to receive love from my spouse and those around me in a certain way, kind of one of these ways primarily. And my spouse is going to receive love in a certain way. Um, and, and so the, the best thing that, that we could do if we want this marriage thing to go well, is to learn to speak one another's love language. You guys kind of follow that? Okay, again, great tool, great tool. But, but here's the problem, okay, here's the problem if I want to use this as a law to ensure that if we do this, our marriage would be successful or thrive or flourish, okay? Here's the problem. I can know that my wife's love language is quality time. But believe it or not, there are moments in our marriage where I don't want to love her. <laughs> and it doesn't matter that I know what my wife's love language is. Because 
it doesn't have any power to help me love her when I don't want to love her. And, and honestly, I know that it goes both ways, all right? And if any of you are married, you're saying amen. That's the way that marriage works. It can be beautiful and wonderful, but it can also be hard. So see, the, the law, any law, it's weak. It's weak because it assumes that we're going to grow to maturity. And it's weak because no law has the power within it to perform what it demands of us. And so that's why he tells us, you want to know why Jesus' covenant is better than the old covenant? Because the law made nothing perfect. Jesus, on the other hand, gives us himself and dwells us with the Spirit of God and empowers us to draw near to God, to walk in relationship with God, to love those around us and the world he's given us like he would love those around us and the world he's given us. The old covenant made nothing perfect. The new covenant perfects us by the power of the resurrected Christ in us. That's amazing. Here's the other statement that he makes, and we'll wrap up here. He says in verse uh, 25, Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he, is, he always lives to make intercession for them. Everything else other than Jesus in which we put our hope, our faith, in which we establish an identity or we look for security, okay, if everything else at some point runs its course, pick a patriarch of whatever movement you want, be it political or spiritual or theological or whatever, they're going to die. And when they die, they're going to face Jesus. And they're going to bend their knee to him. Pick whatever experience. Pick whatever movement or, or group or, or brand or whatever. Pick whatever that you feel like would give you an experience of the transcendent, that would give you a sense of belonging. And at some point, it's going to fade and people are going to move on and something else is going to come along. So there isn't a patriarch, there isn't a priesthood, there's nothing else besides Jesus upon which you and I could place our hope, our faith, our identity, our security that is going to bring to a completion, that is going to bring to an end what we so long for, which is to be reconciled in relationship with God. And the author of Hebrews is telling us because Jesus' covenant is so much better than the old covenant, that's exactly what Jesus does. You want assurance? 
and let's follow Jesus. You want security? He's not going anywhere. He's a priest forever. You want belonging? Jesus will literally usher you into the very presence of God and then pull up a chair and say, let's commune together. That's who Jesus is for those who trust in him. That's the big idea. Jesus is the king of righteousness, the king of peace. He is a high priest forever. And this is good news. This is good news for any of us who are so tired of broken leaders, the broken promises, and the broken law. Let's pray. Father, we ask you now to give us eyes to see, ears to hear. We pray, Father, that you would do a work in our hearts as you intended for those you were speaking to through the author of Hebrews. You, you wanted to disrupt the things that they hoped in, the things that they looked to, the things they trusted in, the security, the identity that they found in those things. You wanted to disrupt it, that they would see that when all else fails, there is one sure and steadfast anchor for our soul, and that is Jesus Christ. Father, we ask you now as we, we, we begin to respond as your people, that we would be moved to worship Jesus, our hearts directed toward him, that we would be confident and assured in our identity placed upon him, that we would be empowered to leave on mission for your name's sake, making much of Jesus in this confidence that we have in him. And so, Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for how it, it unnerves us and disrupts us. And may we repent.